Well, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that we started talking about a topic that doesn't get a lot of, of airtime on Sunday mornings, and that being the subject of, of baptism. And today we're going to take a step further to talk about membership. As I mentioned last week, these are two topics that, um, that are very important in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ, very important within the church, but, but outside of a classroom setting, you typically don't find dedicated Sunday morning teaching on these topics. And so we're going to start off the year by, by doing just that, because uh, as we'd also talked last week, if you imagine your Christian journey as, as a road map, as you're going from, say, Vancouver to Toronto, there's certain points along that journey where you stick that pin in the map and say, I remember at this destination this happened, and this one this happened. And, and baptism is one of those pins, and today we're going to see that membership is another one of those pins that we can stick in the map of our spiritual journey. Now, we had really good response last week following the message on baptism. There's a number of people who are contemplating the opportunity in the weeks ahead to be baptized, and so we anticipate that we'll be able to celebrate with them in just a short time. Uh, and I also want to mention this morning before we go any further, that invitation is still open. In fact, it's open every day of the week throughout the whole year. If at any point, especially right now as we're talking about these things, if you have not been baptized by immersion and would like to consider doing that, let us know. And you can do that by talking to us following a service or by contacting the office. Or you can go to the website at westmeadows.org and you'll see there's at the top a word that says connect. And if you click on that, you'll see a, a window for, mem- uh, for baptism. And uh, you can register there. You can listen to the sermon on that website page and learn more information there. So we're hoping to hear from you if you're interested in that step of your spiritual journey. One thing I didn't mention last week is that sometimes baptism is referred to as the initiatory ordinance. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that that declaration, that that testimony that we give that is symbolized in the act of baptism also signifies the entry into the church of Jesus Christ. Now, at minimum, people can take that to understand as as symbolically expressing our entrance into the universal church, meaning uh, all believers of all times from all places, past, present, and future under that universal church. Uh, Some would also understand that to mean baptism and immediately thereafter being granted membership into the local body. And in fact, that's actually what happened to Nadine and I when we were baptized. We were 20 at the time, and we knew that we had signed up for baptism, and we had gone through all the preparation, and the day arrives, and there's a beautiful service, and we are baptized following Excuse me, we went out into the foyer and people were talking to us and congratulating us. You go up for lunch and then the day is over. Or, or was it? Because then the next week happened and we're sitting in our pew, regular Sunday morning service. Pastor gets up and gives announcements. And when he finishes, he calls Mark and Nadine Dixon to come forward to the platform. Now, when that happened, I thought at best, he just wants to give us our baptismal certificates because I forgot to pick those up during the week. But I thought that'd be kind of a funny way to do that in the middle of a service. At worst, I thought, well, I'm in trouble already. Like, it's only been a week. <laughs> what did I do? Like, it, and I had these flashbacks to high school when the principal comes over the PA and it's like, Mark Dixon, please come to the principal's office. And so he calls us up on the platform and then he references our baptism from the week prior. And, and he says then a phrase that I had never in my life to that point heard before. And then he says, and today we extend to you the right hand of fellowship. He shook our hands, and we were members. 
of that local church. Now, we had no idea that was going to happen. We had even less understanding of what that actually meant. And yet, within a few weeks, they still put me on the board, which was curious. Now, that's actually not the practice that we have here at West Meadows, and that's not the practice that I'm accustomed to from my history with, uh, with churches either. Now, it's not a matter of good and bad. It's not a value statement, but we operate according to our Constitution, and we won't get into it today because the Constitution is to be dry to read, but in summary, our Constitution doesn't, doesn't operate that way. The way it says is that if you are planning to get baptized or if you haven't baptized, to become a member of the local church, you make application to do so. And so if you're thinking of being baptized, you're contemplating that, you don't need to worry about membership being lumped on top of that right now. We do want you to become a member as well, but we'll deal with that at uh, another day. Now, <clears throat> some of you might be thinking, well, good, because the last thing I need is another membership, right? You know, and, and there's truth in that statement, because we are absolutely bombarded with requests for memberships within the society we live in. You know, I sat back this week and chatted with Nadine for a second. We made a quick list of all of the memberships that we could think of just off the top of our heads. And we have just, I'm sure this isn't a complete list, but we have a gym membership, a City of Edmonton Recreation membership, Community League, Costco, AAA, Xbox Live for Joshua. We have the NASA <laughs> Union membership at the university. Uh, we're members of Apple Music, Texture Magazine, Netflix. We used to be members of Blockbuster before they went under, and we have a membership with Air Miles, and that doesn't even start to get into the rewards cards that you get at places you go to, which are everywhere. I think it is a true fact that there is no longer a single cash register left that you can just walk up to with cash, pay, and leave without actually being asked if you have a membership or if you'd like to sign up for one. To, to prove that point, you simply need to look at your wallet or look at your purse, and I think it's probably going to be busting open a little bit. You've probably had those experiences like me where you walk up to the till and they ask you, do you have a rewards card? And you think, I probably do because I have so many. And so you open your wallet and then it turns into like shuffling a deck of cards to try and find it. You know, in fact, last week or a couple weeks ago, I think it was, Nadine said she needed to go buy a new wallet. And I thought, well, that's curious because she just got a nice large new wallet. And I said, what's wrong with the one that you have? She says, well, I need a smaller one for all my rewards cards. And so we end up carrying two wallets for all of these. But that's the reality of the world that we live in. And so when we hear this word membership, number one, we think we know what it means. And number two, we're not quite sure we want another one because we already have so many. And so it makes you also wonder, perhaps, what makes this any different than the guy trying to sell me a gym membership? What makes this any different than the guy trying to get me to get his rewards card? at the grocery store. Well, by the time that we're finished here today, I hope that it will have provided you with a good answer to that question. Because membership in the local church is not about rewards. Membership in the local church is not about access or privileges. Instead, it is about committing yourself to like-minded, like-believing people who are on mission for Jesus Christ. Now, one area of concern that I've encountered over the past years is actually the erosion in the significance of church, of church membership. And I believe this is in part due to an incomplete or an inappropriate definition of the church. So let's begin there this morning. Let's begin by examining that question. What is the church? 
What is it that I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, am being considered or asking to consider joining or, or committing to? Now, this may surprise you, but recent studies have been done, and they've shown that a majority of North Americans actually belong to some religious body. Now, regardless of religion or denomination of cultural status, this belonging to a body, however, really is more of a cultural formality than a serious commitment. And if we were to ask those people, what is the church? A large group of them would say, well, the church, the church is a building. It's a, it's a physical structure with a fixed address. And we see this in the language that we use as well. We, we ask people questions like, where is your church? Or what church do you go to? Or if we talk about planting churches, sometimes the first thing we think of is we need to go erect a building. Which is actually a poor model of church planting for step one. So that's another sermon. Some other people hear the word church. And they think, well, church is the programs. It's the activities and events that happen for every age and every stage within a church. That church has creative children's ministry. That church has active youth. That church does great marriage retreats. That church has a cool primetime group. That church over there even has a group called Extra Years of Zest. And now, if your definition of the church is limited to buildings and programs it does look similar to a gym membership. Because we're then looking at it from a customer-driven approach that is designed to attract people. It's a customer-driven approach that answers the question, do they offer what I want? Now, I'm not suggesting buildings and programs are bad. They have a purpose, and they are very useful aids in helping us to fulfill the mission that we are called to fulfill. But what I am suggesting is that the Bible provides a different understanding of this term church. And there are two metaphors, actually, that we find in the Bible that I want to unpack briefly for you this morning that describe the church of Jesus Christ, and both of them will prove that it is indeed his church. And so let's have a look at these and see what we can learn about defining and answering that question, what is the church? Now, first of all, The first metaphor is that the church is the body of Christ. That word body is is a word that finds application in a variety of places in the English language. It's one of those words where if you open a dictionary, it has a really long entry in it because it gets used in all sorts of different places. The word body can refer to the main part of a plant or animal. It can refer to a body of water. Even this part of my shirt that covers the trunk of the body is called the body of the shirt. We even use that word if we're tasting a fine wine. You say, that wine has body. Also, we see that word defined as a group of persons organized for a common purpose, which is the closest definition of what we're trying to talk about. Now, part of this idea of the the body of Christ, which is a very common, the most common uh, metaphor that we find in the New Testament, refers to a group of people who are truly saved, joined together as one under the willful submission of Jesus Christ. And we read about this in Romans 12 when, when we read that in Christ we, though who are many, we form one body and each member belongs to all others. Now this metaphor works in the sense that we are all unique individuals. We all have individual skills and personalities and backgrounds who have all come together. Some of us have a musical ability, like people on our worship team, and so they lead 
worship within the church. Other people like to decorate, and so we have things set up around the church at Christmas time. Others are mechanical, and so they go fix our rooftop units when they break. Right, Mike? Yep. <laughs> Others are, are inclined to building, and so they repair things and upgrade things. Some people like to eat baked goods and only work one day a week, so they become pastors, which is what we do, right? <laughs> but we all come together. We all come together and have two things in common. Number one, regardless of our backgrounds, our talents, our individualness, regardless of that, we all come together and number one, are saved by grace under Jesus Christ. And number two, are brought together for the purpose of being on mission for Jesus Christ. And so that's that final one, that on mission for Jesus Christ, actually helps us go a little bit deeper in finding significance in this idea of being the body of Christ. Because that means one other thing as well. Because remember, Jesus entered this world and took on a physical body that was prepared in advance for him. And through that physical body, he demonstrated the love of God clearly, tangibly, and boldly. Especially through his sacrificial death upon the cross for us. And as we know, soon after, and that we will soon celebrate at Easter... He did not stay in the ground, but was resurrected and ascended in bodily form. And at that moment, his final words to us in the Great Commission transferred that responsibility to us, where we now do the work he did in physical body. And so we as the church continue the work that Jesus began to demonstrate the love of God clearly, tangibly, and boldly in the world. And in this way, we who are gathered in the body functionally continue the ministry that Jesus began in physical body. So we are the body of Christ as many parts brought together into one, but we are also metaphorically the body of Christ because we are the physical representation of the love of God that is to boldly, tangibly, and clearly be expressed to the world as well as we continue what he started. And so in partial answer to that question... What makes the church different than the gym membership or the grocery store clerk? First of all, the church is referred to as the body of Christ because all of us as members are joined together in Jesus Christ and his salvation. All of us are to be followers of Jesus Christ under his lordship, his headship above us. All of us as members are to be physical representatives of Jesus Christ in the world. And all of us will one day share in his inheritance as well. Now that last one, that idea of sharing in his inheritance, that actually leads us into the second metaphor that help us understand this biblical definition of the local body of Jesus Christ. Because not only is the church referred to as the body of Christ, it's also referred to as the bride of Christ. And this brings to the forefront this imagery of marriage that is applied to Jesus and the body of believers. Where Jesus is the bridegroom who has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. Now, we read about this in Ephesians 5, a passage that speaks about husbands and wives and their relationships to each other, but then holds up Jesus' relationship to the church as an example to us. And it says this. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Now, in biblical times, prior to marriage, there was this serious uh, binding act called betrothal that you've probably heard of before, where, where while a people, for all intents and purposes, were married, there is a period of separation and preparation. We recall at Christmas time, we talk about how Mary was betrothed to Joseph. For all intents and purposes, they were married, but they just hadn't officially finalized that yet. And there's this period of separateness and preparation that happens. And so too in the age that we currently find ourselves, where we have a binding, very real, very significant relationship between Jesus and the church, but there's a period of separation and preparation that we currently find ourselves in, where we are anticipating that glorious wedding day that we read about in the book of Revelation. And while we wait for his return, while we wait for that day, we as the body of Jesus Christ, are to be on mission for Jesus Christ as that act of preparation. Now, some may assume that all of that is fine, but, but can't I do this on a solo mission? can I do this on my own? Why do I have to be part of a church to accomplish all that? I can love Jesus on my own. I can, I can serve him and tell people about him on my own. Well, I understand where that comment comes from, but I think what you're actually saying, if we think that, is we're saying, I love Jesus, and sometimes people define it this way, I love Jesus, but I can't really stand the church. Maybe that comes from past experiences. Maybe it comes from from news media that only shows one side of what the church means. It may come from a bad experience that we don't want to risk or enter ourselves back into. But at times people will say the phrase, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. But considering what we just talked about, considering that we talked about the church is the body of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, how would you feel or how would you respond if somebody came up to you and said, I love you, man. I'm just not so fond of your body. A.K.A., you've got a great personality. Right? Or, or what if they came up to you and said, I love you, but I, I just can't really stand your wife. Would you take that as a compliment, or would you take that as an offense? No, you would be offended by that type of a comment. And now Jesus positions himself not just as the head of the church, not just as the groom of the church, but he so closely identifies him with the church that I want to suggest to you today it's not actually possible to even separate those two things. Consider, for example, in Acts 9, when we read the account of Saul, who was breathing murderous threats against Christ's followers, the Bible tells us. He is breathing murderous threats against those followers. He is arresting them and beating them and imprisoning them, all who belong to the way, which was a term used to refer to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who is the way. And as he's walking along the road near Damascus, a light from heaven flashes and blinds him. And Jesus speaks to him. And what does Jesus say? It says that he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul had not persecuted Jesus Christ personally himself. When in the accounts before Jesus' death and resurrection, we don't even read of Saul. We find Saul afterwards trying to stop the movement of the church. And here Jesus confronts him, having persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. And in essence, Jesus is saying to him, when you mess with them, you mess with me. And there is no distinction between the two. 
And so when we come to be followers of Jesus Christ, there is this inherent responsibility to be participants within the church. And in fact, if you do a survey of the New Testament and look up a word, the word ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is the most common word that's used in reference to the church. You will find that it means a, a gathering of people who are called out for a common purpose. And of the 114 times that it exists in the New Testament, at a minimum, 90 of those times refer specifically to the local church. The other 20 or so times we refer to the universal church, which is still very important teaching and very relevant to those who are part of the local church. But 90, at minimum, of the 114 times are specific references to the local church. And then add this on top of that. A special interest is that the biblical authors never once address a follower of Jesus Christ not belonging to a church. In, case, in every single case, when address is made to a person, they are identified by their church. The two are considered one and the same in the gospels, in the letters of Paul that we write. Therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, I pose this question for you to ask yourself. If Paul were writing a letter to me, which church would he identify me with? Because that's the model we find. If Paul were writing me a letter, which church would he identify me with? Now, many of you here would confidently answer West Meadows Baptist Church. And we are glad to have you to be a part of us. Your dedication and your service is a testament to God's faithfulness to this people and to his ministry in this area. Others that are with us, though, have not taken that step to formalize that relationship. And again, we are glad to have you here with us. But I want to encourage you to consider what that step may look like. What would it look like to affirm that commitment? What would it look like to affirm your presence among us by becoming a member? And one way that this has been approached in the past few years is by asking this question. At what point do we stop dating the church? Now, the term dating the church was coined by a game named Joshua Harris, who wrote a book simply titled, Stop Dating the Church. And the whole point of this book was to encourage people to stop church hopping, for one, and, and to pick a place in which they could attend regularly, a place that they could plant some roots to systematically support and to regularly participate in community for their own personal growth, for their own relational establishment, but also for the betterment of other people as well. Now, this phrase seems a little provocative, and, and I do tend to, to avoid such terms, but I actually like this one. I, I like this term because it calls a few points to the surface in reference to church membership. Number one, the idea of dating. Because dating the church actually has a role to play. I don't think it's necessarily healthy for somebody to jump into membership their first day with us. This idea of dating is the idea of before you apply for membership, we get to know each other a little bit. You know, can we be like-minded, like-committed people for the long term? So there's actually a role that, that dating can play within the church. And, and when you first get here, you don't know if you want to marry us. And we don't know if we want to marry you. We need some time to figure that out. But the time does come when we need to move to that next step. And, and this is not a hard and fast rule, but I would suggest that's probably a minimum of six months for us to get to know each other a little bit and, and to be among each other before we can start to consider that step. But just as that day came in 1994, 
when Nadine sat me down in a booth at the BX restaurant in Prince George, and she laid out her well-thought-out, logical, convincing reasons why we need to get married, so too, <laughs> she won me over, she convinced me, so too, the time will come when you need to enter into that covenant relationship with the church. And that's the other reason I like this analogy, because it speaks of moving at some point from dating to marriage, which is kind of what we want to talk about, because marriage, we hear that word, and, and we can associate with that the word covenant, a marriage covenant. And a covenant relationship is the foundation of our unity as a local body of believers. And this is one point that I want us to really carefully understand and consider, because Above all others, I, I really believe that this idea of covenant relationship is probably the most profound idea that separates church membership from your gym membership that you have. So let's consider that for a minute. If you decide to join a gym, we're just shortly into the new year and a lot of people are contemplating that. So you walk in the doors of the gym and they'll give you a tour. They'll tell you about the promotions that are going on. They'll tell you about the benefits of their gym versus other ones. And they will tell you how good it will be for you if you participate in their gym. And then they pull out the sales contract. And that contract states the rules and the conditions for you to be a part of that gym. Essentially, it says you pay us 50 bucks a month. You treat our people and our equipment well. And we'll grant you access to our gym. And that's how a contract works. A contract really boils down to party one agrees to A, B, and C. Party two agrees to X, Y, and Z. Now, what happens if party one doesn't follow through? What happens if party one doesn't pay their 50 bucks a month? Well, the gym no longer grants them access to the gym. But what happens if the gym decides to lock the doors and not grant you access? Well, they're not getting my 50 bucks. You see, that's how contracts work. They, contracts exist, really, for the self. They exist to protect the self. They're inherently protectionistic. It, they basically boil down to, if I don't get mine, you don't get yours. That's how a contract works. But when we look at joining a church, we're not signing a contract. We're entering into a covenant agreement. But this can look actually very similar. Now consider a covenant agreement that many of us are going to be familiar with, that, that, that covenant of marriage, where again, two parties come forward, party one and party two. And before their friends and their family and before God, they swear their vows and they exchange rings. Those vows essentially are the party one agrees to ABC, party two agrees to XYZ. We agree that, we make a solemn promise, and then we exchange rings, which signs that agreement. So it looks very similar to a contract, but here's the difference. What happens if party one doesn't follow through on A, B, and C? Does that mean party two gets to cut and run? Does that mean party two can say, hey, said contract null and void. I am free and can move on. Unfortunately, there are people in society who treat marriage that way. But I think we know if we want to have a long, enduring, healthy marriage relationship, when one party doesn't follow through, we don't cut and run. It's not right. It's not fair. It needs to be addressed. But here's the difference. The agreement isn't protectionist for me, where if I don't get mine, I'm out of here. 
Instead, a covenant says, I gave my word. Unconditionally, I gave my word. And my word is good. I didn't say I promised to love, honor, and serve as long as you promise to love, honor, tease, and tickle. That's not how the vows go. And if you don't follow through, I get to cut and run. I gave my word that even when it gets tough, I hunker down and I weather the storm. That's, that's how covenants look. They look more like an, an other-focused, unconditional, solemn promise. And indirectly, Jesus talked about this type of a thing in, um, in the book of Matthew, early on in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, instead of making promises where you swear on things, I swear on my daughter's life, I swear on my mother's grave, he said, no, just stand by what you say. Just make sure your word is your bond. Live such a good witness before people that when you say you're going to do something, they don't question it. And he boiled it down to simply saying this. He said, all you need to say simply is yes and no. Now, in order for somebody to be believed 100% that their yes is yes and their no is no, preceding that is a solemn commitment and a personal character that backs it up, that you believe and trust that person. And this is one of the most difficult, but one of the most important aspects of church membership, is that it is a solemn promise that we make with one another. Because Nadine and I have been married for over 20 years, and I guarantee you I have not been a 100% stellar husband the whole time. I've done stuff that if this was a contract, she would have had a reason to cut and run. That's not a contract. And the reality is I'm not perfect. I will make mistakes. I will fumble the ball on occasion. But she made a promise. And I made a promise. And it's an unconditional promise to stay together and to figure it out. Same thing in the church. None of us are perfect. If you are part of a church membership, I guarantee you that you are just as imperfect as everybody else, and we will all fail each other from time to time. And that failure is not grounds or reason to move on. It is reason to address it. That's why we have church discipline. That's why we have those things in place. They need to be addressed because they're wrong and they're not right. But we go through it together. This is that unity. Unity is not easy. Unity is a choice that we make to stay unified because there are so many forces and so many reasons that would rather have us be in a state of disunity. We need to choose and work hard to stay in that's the hard work and the choice. So in church membership, we're entering into this type of unconditional solemn promise. It's not about joining a club. It's about sealing a covenant with God and sealing a covenant through an unconditional promise with like-minded, like-committed people. And that commitment finds its expression in two parts. The first is this, that in keeping with the teachings of the New Testament that we've talked around today, the first one is that we are committed to live alongside one another for the sake of one another. That is best understood through so many of the teachings of Paul. And if you were again to do a word study of Paul's writings on the word one another, these are the types of things that you would find. I think there's 59 one another's that you'll find in the New Testament that point towards our relationship to one another. We are to care for, love, host, receive, honor, serve, instruct, forgive, motivate, build up, 
We are to encourage, comfort, pray for, confess, esteem, edify, teach, show kindness to one another. We are to give to, rejoice with, weep with, hurt with, and restore one another. And the list goes on. That's a powerful list of verbs, of actions that, that we are called to within this unity. And I don't know about you, but it actually motivates me to want to be a part of that, to give of myself that I may be of service to others, but also that when I'm in a time of need, I might be able to receive from others that I'm in covenant relationship with. But notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say anything that gives a sense of a MasterCard slogan where membership has its privileges. Because that's not what it's about. It's, that would actually, what we've covered so far about what it means to be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and to enter into a covenant relationship, this idea that membership has its privileges would would somewhat fly in the face of that definition because privileges, again, speaks of me. What do I gain from this? But in the church, regardless of status or position or affluence or longevity, there really is no special treatment earned or rewarded for those things. They need to be respected. It's a significant thing to stay faithfully in one direction with one people for a long time. That is no small thing by any means. But if anything... I hope that that longevity or that status or that ability to serve within the church actually finds a sense of expecting more of those people because there are others who need to be brought along into the faith. And if that is the story for you, then you have so much to offer, so much to bring to those who are newer and need to enter into that covenant. But then the second aspect is this. The second aspect of the covenant of the church finding expression is that we need to be a people who are on mission for Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, one way that we can understand the, the church as the body of Christ is that we are a people, we are a group who are to continue his work. In the final words that Jesus prayed before being arrested and being crucified, this is what he was earnestly praying about when he shared those words that are on the screen. He said, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought together in complete unity. If that happens, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you, and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, that unity is a message to the world as well. If we can stay in loving, committed unity as a body, that is a message to the world as well. So these passages describe what biblical covenant relationship in the church should look like. And here at West Meadows, I hope you will want to join us in living out those principles in the days ahead. And I want to invite you that if you are sensing that perhaps it's time to, to take that step, to look more into this covenant relationship of membership, then let us know about that. Come speak with Pastor Luke or with myself following the service throughout the week. We're actually going to be having a membership class where we're going to talk more about this and look at some of the, the church covenants and constitution a little more closely and answer any questions that people may have and that class is going to be happening on February 5th in the afternoon. And if you are considering that that might be a step or something you want to look more into, then let us know. Come talk to us. We'll be covering the process and some of the different statements. You can also contact the office or, again, go to the website, and you'll see under the Connect button an area for membership where, again, you'll be able to hear the sermon and register and find out some more information. I need, I need to close. But I want you to know that membership is open to anybody who has received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and has expressed that in baptism 
by immersion. And all who desire to live alongside one another for the sake of one another as a people who are on mission, as the body of Christ and as the bride of Christ. I ask if you would join me in a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, these are powerful metaphors that we are the body of Christ. Lord, thank you that, that you established that, that by your death and sacrifice, that can become a reality as people who are unified under salvation, but also on mission that you started and made reality impossible. God, I pray for each person here that, that has been a long, faithful member. God, may they sense your pleasure in that commitment and that dedication. As we also mentioned, there are days that are not easy. There are days that are difficult when we contemplate the option to cut in line. But I thank you, Lord, for those who have a, a history of longevity. But Lord, may we see our place here as a responsibility to you and to those as we are gathered together as a people who are for one another, who love and serve, protect, who weep with, who cry with, who support, encourage, and motivate one another. And Lord, I also pray that as Jesus did, that you would protect the unity of the believers. Protect our unity, Lord. In this day ahead, in this, this season and year ahead, Lord, there will be much that we talk about in terms of, of direction and vision. There will be new people who join us. And every time we enter into those conversations or we expand the definition of who we are, there's the opportunity for disunity, Lord. May we be a people who stand together who can wrestle and talk through the hard things, but emerge shoulder to shoulder, back to back, and face to face, in support and under the banner of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name.